This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Answers, a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and I am so excited to share the next in this summer series where we are rebroadcasting episodes of Octella's Speaking and Listening podcast in partnership with Octella, the Ohio Council of Teachers of English Language Arts. Now, before we get to the interview, I'd like to share a poem with you. It's from Thomas Transtromer's book, For the Living and the Dead. And this poem is called Bersuz. I am a mummy at rest in the blue coffin of the forests in the perpetual roar of engines and rubber and asphalt. What happened during the day sinks. The lessons are heavier than life. The wheelbarrow rolled forward on its single wheel, and I myself traveled on my spinning psyche. But now my thoughts have stopped going round and the wheelbarrow has got wings. At long last... When space is black, a plane will come. The passengers will see the cities beneath them, glittering like the gold of the Goths. So a few years ago, when I did the speaking and listening podcast for Octella, I interviewed Shauna Coppola. This is after she had recently published her book, Renew, which is a guide to becoming a better and more authentic writing teacher. And it's all about writing workshop and where things go right and where things could be better. And it was interesting because as I was talking to her at the beginning of the conversation, she had told me that she was interested, like lately, in writing as drawing or drawing as a form of writing, especially in the area of comics. And if you follow Shauna's work, you know that this curiosity that she had about how writing could be different and how writing could take other forms, well, you probably know that this would eventually become her newest book which is called Writing Redefined, which is all about broadening our ideas of what it means to compose. So this conversation is kind of fun because it's almost like a time capsule of the kind of thinking that Shauna was doing that would eventually lead into the book that she recently put out. Anyway, it was an awesome conversation. We talked about all kinds of things that have to do with writing and what it could be, what it should be. And we also talked about like how school could do a better job of working with students especially like bright kids that struggle with school, especially when it comes to the area of dyslexia. So it was a really wide-ranging conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So here it is, my interview with Shauna Coppola. Like making comics, is that something that you've always been into, or is this just a recent development? Um, not really. I mean, I've never really thought of myself as someone who's artistic and this is just um speaks to the power of growth mindset you know it's not just something we talk about it's actually something that works and the power of practice because um I've always been into comics um particularly when I was a kid I used to read all the Archie comics and I was a big mad magazine fan and um but I never really 
I never really thought of myself as someone who draws or anything like that. Um, but then once I started getting into sketch noting, um, which happened probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, um, I started doing it because I had, you know, heard about it. And then I read Doodle Revolution by Sonny Brown and um, started practicing. And the more, the better I got at that, the more I thought, oh my gosh, I, I can sort of maybe think of myself as an artist now. Um, and people were saying, oh my gosh, can I take pictures of your work? This is amazing that you're such an artist. And I was like, that is not something I ever identified with. Um, so I don't know. I guess I, right now it's kind of weird because I've only been doing comics for a few years, but now I start to think in comics. So I'll be in a situation wow. and I'll be like, oh, I can picture the comic. <laughs> That's amazing. So that's crazy that you haven't been doing it for very long. Because I've seen a lot of your comics um, on Twitter, for example. And it does not look like you've only been doing it for a couple of years. Or that you just oh, recently you. started... Th so, But I do see some connections. Like, uh, maybe you weren't a comic artist forever. But it seems like you've always been into portraying your thinking visually. Like in your book, Renew. Mm -hmm. There's a... I mean, it's packed with visuals. Do you think right. that there's like a connection there? Have you always been into that kind of visual, um, making your learning visible in that kind of visual way? No, and that's what's super interesting, I think, and what is so powerful about, you know, you know being someone who thinks in a really visual way now, because I have always been more of a linguistic sort of learner mm -hmm. and thinker and um, words have been my thing. I've always identified as a writer. Um, I was really good in school. I played the game super well because it's very linguistic based. Um, and then, you know, I've just become more visual as I've been practicing. And now, um, like I said, I start to think, I mean, this summer I, um, or last summer I taught a course at the New Hampshire Literacy Institute's um, called writing looked a lot at the ways that um, we compose visually in the world and one of the things that I shared then was that sometimes I actually think in emojis <laughs> so, so like I'll be looking at I'll be I'll be looking at something or something will be happening and all of a sudden I'll think in my head the 100 emoji like I'm not thinking what it means I'm like it's popping into my head isn't that bizarre? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I just want to drill in one more time to this, just because I'm like, you have me curious. Yeah. Were you, did you feel like you were the opposite of an art, artistic person? Did you feel like you were uh, like, you know, the way some kids are like, I'm not a reader, I'm not a writer. Did you feel that way about yourself as an artist before the sketch noting caused you to start rethinking? Yeah, 100%. When I was a kid, I remember um, I, I didn't dislike art class, but I remember sort of having this dread about it because I was never the one that, that my art teacher said, oh, everybody, let's look at this person's work. Let's look at Shauna's work. Oh, my gosh, look at what she's done. But my best friend growing up was that way. And, you know, we would draw, and, you know, I guess one of the things we used to do is used to um, – we used to draw, like, potential outfits for the week um, from our closet. But she, you know, I never thought that mine were any good, and hers were always amazing. Um, 
And so, no, I just never, I never really thought of myself like that I at all. It just, so it sounds like the process was you had early life experience that caused you to feel like you took, you were taking on the role of person who isn't an artist. And then you find this, I don't know if it's entry level or just a version that connected with the type of artist that you kind of had locked away and then immersion and then open-mindedness and then everything can become this sort of art is that the process yeah and it actually connects well to the kind of work that I'm able to do in the school that I currently work in because we're all about that sort of constructivist Mm -hmm. mindset that inquiry mindset and um and immersion is a huge part of it, you know, um, especially when you're, you know, learning from mentors. And so that's exactly what happened. I found a doorway in, which is really important um, to, to help, you know, I think to help students and teachers too find doorways into new thinking and new kinds of work. Um, and then immerse them in it and talk about, you know, what do you notice and what do you wonder and try it out, you know, really yeah. in low risk ways. So that's exactly what I did. So this is a great segue into the book. Like, we'll get into explaining the book and, and what what the Renew process is all about. But I think this interview might go in a little bit of a non-linear path, which is fitting since the book, you know, says we shouldn't be linear with our teaching, I think. So That's like, right. <laughs> So this, your process of becoming a an artist, a comics artist, I think mirrors a little bit of what you say on page 88 of what we do to help students become writers. You said... Um, this is what writers do. We try on aspects of our favorite mentors, writing identities, as we try on our own. And that you didn't have this epiphany until you started writing later on. So it seems yeah. like you were trying on the sketchnoting. Uh, I guess you were trying on sketchnoting identity, and then that led to you developing your own identity as an artist. This... Do you feel like you being a learner in this way has impacted the way you teach the way in the same way that uh, learning how to write impacted the way you teach writing? Oh, definitely. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, those of us who are sort of in this work of writing professional books for teachers and presenting at conferences, we, we all talk a really good talk, but it's, <laughs> it's really true. I mean, I, w I'm talking and writing from my heart and truly I feel like um, this whole aspect of trying things on. I mean, I first sort of learned that from Katie Wood Ray and her amazing book, Wondrous Words. She sort of opened me up to this idea of trying things on. And then it was sort of like a perfect storm of um, the growth mindset thinking coming along at that exact time when I was looking at that and, um, and, I don't know. It's, it's just, I think the other thing that helped was graduate school. I mean, graduate school was like, you know, you were able to really dive deeply into things that you necessarily weren't able to as an undergrad or in your work as a classroom teacher. That was the case for me anyway. I mean, workshops only go so far. Um, and so I just really feel like I was able to sort of try on some different, you know, personas and, and, Looking back, that's actually what I was like as a writer because I, when I'm looking back on it, I realized that I was trying on a lot of the per, the kind of style um, of my favorite writers growing yeah. up. 
So is is grad school where it clicked for you to start being a teacher writer? Um, yeah, it actually did because I always and I kind of say this in the book too. I mm-hmm. always I thought I was such a great teacher because I did all of the assignments that oh, I yeah. asked my students to do. And that is really good work and and I think that is important to do, but I wasn't writing for myself. And that's when everything changed. When I started writing for myself or even composing for myself, because I think visual composition is a really valid and valuable form of writing. Um, that's when everything changed for me as a teacher. I, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I probably, I'm, I think your book is motivating me to go further in that direction, especially in the mindset of, uh, of a writer. Like I, I've always been a a writer, but I don't. I write my own. Like I'm a. I like to do music, so I write a lot of music, and that's kind of where I spend most of my writing time. Um, but lately, I've been, especially after reading Renew, I've been trying to dig deeper into just being a writer. Um, and it, like when I read those pages, it, it was like a. I had my own little epiphanies just because. I'm realizing as I'm writing or as I'm researching something for what I'm writing, oh man, why am I not having students do it like this? Why are... So I guess what I'm trying to get at is how did you get to the point where you were starting to put all these ideas together for the book? Um, Was it this moment where you start realizing that I need to be a writer or was was it the rethinking part of the process that got you started with the idea for this book? Where did the idea for Renewed really start um well i'm glad you asked the question because i'm such a process nerd i love hearing about how books come to be and um so it was a lot of different things i sort of um in the introduction i sort of talk about how my life as a parent and a co-parent to our two daughters really um helped me become comfortable with the idea of rethinking and revising long-held assumptions um, because we definitely had to do that in order to parent both of our girls in equally effective ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, and then I just, you know, for the past seven years, I've been working as a literacy specialist in this amazing K-6 to school where um, I've been given a ton of autonomy. The teachers I work with are given a ton of autonomy and um and just they're so open to to being better and more effective. And I've, I've always felt that way about myself. Like, I've never felt like, um, of course, there's times when criticism and reflection, you kind of feel like, ugh, that it just doesn't feel good. But for the most part, I'd say 95% of the time, when I reflect on who I am and what I do, um, both as an educator and as a person, Um, I just, it motivates me to be better and it it sort of invigorates me. And so I wanted to bring that, that kind of, um, that feeling to my readers that, you know, reflection isn't something to feel badly about. It's something to say, it's something to help you say, wow, I have a chance to, to, to do things differently. And that's, that's exciting because, you know, you get to, who doesn't want to be better? <laughs> <laughs> so did did you decide you wanted to write this book and then the rethink, revise, renew process came to you? Or was there a moment or a series of moments that shaped that thinking? 
Um, well, I have the most amazing editor, and she is a literacy um, guru in her own right. So Maureen Barbieri is definitely, mm-hmm. she's a legend. And um, she was my, she was an instructor of mine um, when I was continuing to take classes even after I earned my master's degree because um, I'm just like a total nerd and so <laughs> I continue to take classes um, and she was an instructor she recognized something in me she she liked my voice and she said you know you have a lot to say <laughs> yeah. and I'm like yeah I do um, and so after my class ended with her we just started talking and you know at, you know she works as an editor for Sin House Publishers and um, just sort of I guess saw some kind of spark and so we would have coffee and talk about things and she was she she was very gentle she wasn't like trying to put my thinking into any sort of container we just would talk and she would get me talking and thinking and encourage me to just just write just keep writing about you know what you're thinking about and eventually after you know many many meetings and conversations um we sort of said oh that's it it's re- it's about renewing yourself. It's about feeling reinvigorated and revising and doing all these things we ask students to do all the time. Hmm. Makes me wish that um, I could make more time for kids to talk about their writing <laughs> before they start writing. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> absolutely. Because and you know, and we're often we're like, okay, guys, so you know, I'll give you a few minutes to talk, but then you have to you know, be quiet and work on your own. And um, I think that's, to me, the biggest roadblock to helping students' experiences as writers in the classroom reflect the real experiences of writers outside of the classroom is time. That's the biggest roadblock. Um, And I'm not sure how to get around that, but I do think that there's a lot that we can do to, um, you know, to sort of better reflect sort of what, what life is like as a writer outside the classroom. Yeah, it's, it is time. And I mean, Kelly, it can also be like, just that's part of what writers experience. Like, I think I heard from Kelly Gallagher, who may have been getting it from someone else, I can't remember, that um, a, a writing project is never finished, it's just due. And yeah. so, so having not enough time is maybe also part of the authentic process, but we really, sometimes as teachers, we really, really overly cramp things into a small period of time when they need more time to breathe. I'm also thinking about how, like, I think the, the one of the thesis theses of your, of your book is that learning, and especially learning writing, is, is not linear. As teachers, we all want to, I think, I, I don't want to speak for all teachers, but it, for me, as a teacher... I always am thinking, if I could just do this, they'll go from point A to point B. If I just give them this graphic organizer, they'll just go from point A to point B. And it never works out that way because learning isn't linear and writing isn't isn't linear. And I, I'm curious to know about how you feel. Is that, is, is that something that you had in your like the front of your mind as you were writing? Like trying to buck against this... Uh, linear myth of teaching yeah because it's you know when I was an undergrad at the University of New Hampshire certainly I'm probably um, shaming everybody by saying that I left there thinking that what 
Donald Grace and Don Murray and Tom Newkirk were all saying was that there is a linear process, but that's not what they were saying at all. They're just trying to name aspects of processes that writers have so that we can talk about them. Um, and I think for me, because when I started out teaching, it, it was absolutely... I thought it was absolutely linear. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. today we're going to pre-write and tomorrow we're going to draft and on and on and on. And um, the missing link is writing for yourself. And I think mm-hmm. that if you're in the classroom and you do believe that you can linearly teach students to write, say, a piece or a product, um, which itself is something that I wouldn't recommend. I think it's important to teach writers, not products. Um, But I think that if you do believe that it's a linear process, then you're probably not writing for yourself. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It becomes very apparent (laughs) when you start writing for yourself, but it's not linear. I think you... uh... You you put it into you put it really well on page twenty five. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book. Everyone's going to have to buy the book to really get the whole. <laughs> but um, on page twenty five, you you distill that um, what Don Murray said at least about the writing process is that it's not a rigid lockstep process. But most writers, most of the time, pass through these stage these uh, three stages. So, I guess we since we're getting into the book. Maybe we should, at this point, start to unpack just a few of, like, the basic ideas. Um, Do you think that starting with the story that teaching tells, that our teaching tells, is a good place to start? Yeah. um, Like, where do you usually like to start when you give, like, a quick Notes summary? um, I I start with that idea of story. Um, And that's something that I learned from Maya Wilson, who um, wrote Rethinking Rubrics and has a brand new book out that's amazing called Reimagining Writing Assessment. Um, I took a class with her at UNH, of course, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) in the summer, and it was all about how we assess writing. And one of the things that she would invite us to do is to think about the stories that our assessment practices tell students about writing. And I remember writing that word story super huge in my writer's notebook. And I, when I went back to um, my, that was in the summer. So in the fall, when I started working again, I just had that on cardstock, this bright red cardstock, that, that, that word story, because it helped me understand so well what she was talking about in terms of how we assess student writers that to me, it was like a paradigm shift for everything. Like, mm-hmm. what story am I telling through my practice? And that that goes across the board. So, sorry, caught me in the middle of a drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess, how would you unpack the idea for someone who hasn't read the book yet and is thinking about buying it? I think that this story that our teaching tells, is I think that's the part that changed me and it really hooked me too. Um, how would you unpack the idea um, for someone who doesn't know anything about this yet about the story that our teaching tells? Um, so I think when when we think about what our intentions are, um, those can be very different, of course, from what what messages we're sending, and that's the case whether it's about teaching or in life. Um, and so. What, what I think is helpful to me is to think about 
Um, so these are your intentions. Are your intentions matching the messages that students are getting, not just from the words that you're using or what you're saying to them, but from all every aspect of your practice, from the materials you're using, from the environment um, you're offering them in, in your classroom, from the ways that, you know, people, that students in your classroom are, are able or not able to do things, you know, they're, we're sending messages all the time. And so I think that it's useful to start thinking from the perspective of your students, what messages or stories are you telling um, through these practices? And I think once we start looking at that, and we can start by asking students that, I mean, if that's, you know, that can be really difficult for someone to take on that perspective and to think about it in, in those terms. So start by asking your students, you know, what what messages are you getting? Um, what If you were to tell the story of our classroom, what would it be? Um, and, and then maybe that can be the catalyst to help you in your own thinking about the stories that we're telling through our practices. kid's never going to learn to ride the bike if we're always giving them training wheels and sometimes it's I know for me when I use scaffolds it's really hard for me to figure out how to remove them let alone have the courage to remove them and let kids ride that bike because you're always afraid that they'll fall right and I think that speaks to the you know this idea of risk in our classrooms that we have to, and Kelly Gallagher said this, Penny Kittle has, so many people have talked about this, but we have to have lots and lots and lots and lots of um, opportunities for low-risk writing that's not evaluated, that you're, you know, getting feedback on, but, um, you know, it's low-risk. It's not, you know, because yeah. it, it's almost like saying, okay, so we're going to learn to ride a bike, and you're going to ride on the highway today um, <laughs> before you ride on the driveway, like, 8,000 times. Yeah. Oh, man. So what is the number one practice that, like, what is for you right now in the world of teaching, um, what's the number one practice that you'd like to see go through the process that you outline in your book? The rethinking, revising, renewing. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's putting <laughs> on the spot. I, was I saved this one for, for last right before a lightning round just to kind of... <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, I think, well, I, I'm sort of biased right now because I'm working on um, a big project um, for Stenhouse that is taking sort of chapter three, which is, I believe, <laughs> revise and rethink, revise and renew what it means to write. Um, mm -hmm. I think right now, in order to level the playing field and to invite um more students into this so-called writing club, including students who um, have dyslexia or have mm -hmm. dyslexic brains. So, you know, they have, they literally have a cognitive difficulty learning language um, for students for whom English is a second language and for students who just don't connect with linguistic alphabetic kinds of writing, which we over privilege in schools. I mean, let's be clear, as soon as kids move up in the grades, the amount of visual composition they're invited to do drastically decreases. Um, so for me right now, I think, and also looking at what we see in the world with memes and gifts and any kind of 
piece you see online now has visual components, I think we should rethink and revise what it actually means to write. You know, Mm -hmm. to me, that would um, go the furthest in providing a more equitable playing field for all students. I want to plug your blog here. Um, For listeners, it's mysocalledliteracylife.com. Oh, you could just Google Shauna Coppola and then scroll down a couple links and you'll find it. (laughs) Your second to most recent article about dyslexia, um, it really drives home how overwhelming the problem is with not just how we're teaching, but how we're expected to try to teach. It, I, it's something I'd never, it was a real blind spot for me until I read your, your post about how kids with dyslexia need all this extra stuff. And then the teachers who are required to help the kids with dyslexia not only may not have, have the tools they need to work with these kids, or they might be using a, an ineffective tool. On top of that, um, they, from, oh, let me see if I can get it right. I'm telling you what you wrote. This is ridiculous. But, <laughs> but you, you, the point that you made that really hit me was how they are required to teach all this extra stuff while also not removing kids from the instruction that they're supposed to be getting. So they're, they're put in an impossible situation and we're also not armed with the tools that we need. It's a crazy situation. What do you, do you have any ideas on what the next step is toward fixing this problem? Um, well, yeah, I just want to reiterate, you know, the, my understandings about dyslexia have come super, super far in the last year or so. Um, I would, and like I, I wrote in the blog post, I was always told, you know, we don't say that word, you know, mm-hmm. no one really understands it, um, which is not true. I mean, certainly there are disagreements about, you know, some aspects even among experts, um, but we, it's pretty clear to me now, it's very clear to me now when I'm looking at a student's work and listening to a student read um, who is truly dyslexic and who may just need a nudge, you know, who, who is like almost a perfect candidate for, say, Title I. Um, and I think the first step, because there are, there are so many problems with the system right now and how we are able to help students who are dyslexic, um, one of those is that, uh, you know, classroom literacy um, practice is really uh, fo- it should be focused around engagement, number one, and it should be focused around play, language play. Um, and I think that's super important. So that's, you know, the, the, the general classroom environment, I think, should stay like that um, with, with also some, you know, phonics thrown in. I mean, it has to be balanced for sure. But students who have difficulty learning language who are dyslexic, they absolutely need um, explicit, systematic instruction in how our language works and in how letters and sounds go together. And they need tons and tons and tons of extra because their brains are not naturally making those connections. And so, um, you know, I think one of the things that we have to do first and one of the things that we're doing in my school um, is to really bring together the literacy specialists, the speech and language pathologists, and the special education team to talk about this issue because Mm -hmm. 
I think in many ways we are working parallel to each other. Um, and part of that is because the system's not working mm-hmm. um, overall. It's kind of our hands are tied in many ways. But I think the more we get together and talk about these issues and what's happening and put our our brains together, um, we can advocate as a team for change. And that's all we have to do is really be huge, huge, loud advocates for change. Shauna Coppola is just so smart and so passionate about education. And it was, I remember how much fun I had talking to her. And it was just as much fun going back and re-listening and editing this episode just to get to see what it was like, the thinking that would go into her newest book. So to find out more about Shauna Coppola and the work that she does, um, I have shared some links in our show notes. Speaking of show notes, don't forget to check out the Ohio Writing Project. There are lots of ways that you can become involved. There are lots of ways where you can learn alongside the vibrant community that is Ohio Writing Project's teachers. And don't forget to check in with our partners, Octella, the Ohio Council of Teachers of English Language Arts. You can find them at octella.org. And guess where else you can find their information? That's right, the show notes to this episode. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Right Answers.